Coming to you in sharply time-delimited installments, this is the Coot Street Podcast. Good morning, Gary. And good evening, Jonathan. Into a fall or dark and uh, and uh, cool falls uh, term here. Fall. I, 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 I confess I still talk like an academic. It's the fall term because my classes have begun. Ah, well, we are, we are, it is spring here, Gary. I mean, you wouldn't know for it today because it's a little bit gray and overcast, but we've been having bright, light, sunny weather. And for those of you interested in the weather in Perth, Western Australia, in Chicago, in the United States, that's how it is at the moment. It's always spring in us. Tell me, do, 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 you, do you Aussies object to people referring to it as Oz? Well, we call it Oz, so why shouldn't you? Well, okay. However, well, we, ne- just... we never call it or like Aussie. They're Aussies, and it's Australian. Aussies. The, the Aussies. It's purely you. an American pronunciation of it. I'll keep that in mind. There you go. See, so, podcast. Yeah, the Coot Street Podcast, educating you. Educating you all the time. So, what are we doing this week? What are we uh, doing this week? We're recording a podcast. No, actually, there is something I, to talk about. There is something to talk about. I've got some things I'm, in mind too, but that's, you start first. Okay, this week I was. In fact, I can't even say I was catching up on, up on other podcasts, Gary, but I was listening to the writer and the critic who just put out the eleventh installment of their their series, and Ian Mond, who's one of the two with uh, Kristen McDermott, yes. who recorded that, that very entertaining podcast that I enjoy a great deal. Uh, who say lots of interesting things about Nedia Korafor's uh, Who Fears Death, where mm-hmm. Ian, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast, where he says he thinks it's the book that should have won the Hugo for Best Novel, having read all of the, the um, books that were up for the mm. Hugo last year. And he pointed out a flaw in what we've been doing, Gary. It turns out people is? listen to us for book recommendations. This, uh-huh. is a, this is a new and exciting thing for me to discover, Gary. I had no idea why they were listening, but at last I understand. At least, you know. But I've been listening to you for book recommendations. <laughs> and I haven't been reading many books. But it makes, oh. me, makes me stop and think, though. And then follow him. I, I, he said to me, really, the only books you could think of based on our extensive recommendations were, among others, by Joe Walton and Planes Runner by Ian MacDonald, as the books you got to read in 2011. Okay, and, like, uh, Go, go ahead. And, and a quick little thing. Really, what he was, you know, he sort of said it would be good to get a, a pre-Hugo kind of thing where you say, well, what would you flag from 2011? And I began to think about this. I began to look at lists of books, think about all that kind of thing. Oh. But then I came back to what I think is actually a slightly more interesting idea and which will flow into that perhaps and maybe give Ian some, some at least pointers from our perspective. And that's a careful thing. And that is the process for doing it. What is the process by which the field recognizes these books or, you know, and, and starts the dialogue? Because some books benefit from a, a kind of wildfire uh, reaction. And I'm thinking about mm-hmm. like Hanu Ryan Yemi's The Quantum Thief and, frankly, Paolo Bacigalupi's The Wind-Up Girl, both of which, you know, sort of benefited hugely from a wildfire response. And then there are fine books which don't get any kind of great response. Um, I've heard great things this year about is it Memory Bridge, the new book by Stephen Boyette, which is put out by Subterranean. Mm-hmm. But it's not, not much talk about it, really. Uh, and then there are people who would have had a great deal of kind of commentary, like uh, apparently the latest uh, Robert McCammon book, The Five, is the best book he's ever written, some people say. I've heard that. I've heard that myself, yes. And, you know, yet, at least in the, in the circles we move in, there's been no real buzz for it. And some of it is obviously overlapping circles. But, you know, how does a book move from published in April to buzzed about in September to awards nominated potentially next year? And how do books fall out? I mean, uh, I began thinking about how, how we talk about these books. And I was thinking about, uh, say, Embassy Town by China Mieville. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just my lack of daily connection to the field, but it seems like when people come to think about next year, it's only when they really stop and think. They go, "Oh yes, an NBC Town, of course, would be one of the books." It doesn't sit on the you know the, on the tip of their tongues the way that mm-hmm. um, you know sort of last year's book did. So, so well, I don't know. Um, it's interesting that uh, that Ian would mention Nadia Korfor's novel because. The, the normal mechanism by which things uh, get nominated for Hugos and World Fantasies and Nebulas and that sort of thing, it seems to me that that's a book 
that more or less came out of nowhere. I think the, the traditional nominating process is breaking down. I mean, Karen Lord is nominated for a World Fantasy Award for what is a very deserving novel. Mm. But how did it get the amount of attention that, that led to a nomination? That, that part of the process fascinates me. Uh, I'm always delighted to see a book on one of these ballots that I just never expected to see there, even though it might be one that I love. Well, well, and then there's the whole issue of sort of you know. Well, I think, I think at some point you reach a level where there's a cross pollination, cross pollination of recommendations, and so you find that um, this this magazine, that online forum, that reviewer, this commentator, they're all suddenly talking about the same book, and that becomes mm. the weight of opinion that carries it along. But it doesn't happen for some books, um, and I mean some of it is. I and mean, this is something we we're touch, touching on in the, you've touched on in the past are pre-existing prejudices. You know, the filters you set up to filter out the vast tsunami of stuff sometimes catch you know, very worthy works that you wouldn't want to filter out, but you haven't had a chance to readjust your filters to make sure you're letting them through as well, you know. Well, and there's also the kind of buzz that goes around simply because certain writers are consistently visible and consistently um, – uh, when, when China Miebel comes out with a novel, everybody's waiting for it. Yeah. And he's very reliable. Every year there's going to be something. Yeah. Um, and that's the uh, common advice which is given to young writers uh, starting out. You want to make a name for yourself, you have to be visible. Uh, I've just been looking at two books this past week uh, by writers who have disappeared, essentially, for years from the field. And that, in my mind, is no doubt doing damage to the books. One is Joan Slanzuski's The Highest Frontier, which is the first of a series of college books, really, about a, a young woman going to college on a uh, in, in space habitat yep. um, with very inventive stuff and she's always been a very inventive writer we haven't heard from her in 10 years uh, the other writer is Roberta uh, R.A. McAvoy uh, who I was just absolutely like everybody else enthralled with Tea with the Black Dragon something like 28 years ago it is, and, yeah. and, and she wrote some trilogies and she hasn't been heard from in almost two decades now No, uh, and that basically means the waters are calmed. People are not waiting for the next novel from somebody they haven't heard from for a decade. Well, I think that's true. I and mean, I, I wonder if that's what happens as well for someone who's either uh, been released by the publishing industry or has decided to you know, move away from them. Uh, mm. And I'm thinking about uh, Linda Nagata, yeah. who wrote a sequence of very good hard SF novels. Uh, back in the was it the late nineties, early two thousands, something like that, late, mm -hmm. and then hasn't really done much in a lot for some time, but is now self-publishing like a fantasy novel off her website. Right, and that kind of stuff tends to fall outside of everybody's filters, or at least mine. It's falling outside. I'm not mine. I'm aware of it, but we haven't really looked at it closely, and we probably should. Um, but there's that feeling of well, there's that as well over there, and you're sort of faintly aware of it. Um, and I guess the, 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 the two follow-ons, and I guess the first one I'll start with is, if there's a process, and if it's a really ill-defined, sketchy process where books bubble to the top by word of mouth and everything else, mm -hmm. um, how do you nudge that to make sure that works that you think are important do get discussed? I mean, and important for any reason. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about it in an inclusive kind of a way. I mean, one of the books I'm fascinated about this year, actually, I have to say, is Joe Walton's Among Others, which we come back to. Mm. Because I kind of feel like even though she's won the World Fantasy Award with, say, Life Load, which came out a couple of years back from Nesva because she couldn't get it out from mm -hmm. a major trade publisher, that's a book that wasn't going to get a lot of word of mouth. And from a distance, if you gave someone a thumbnail sketch of, among others, mm -hmm. I think it looks like the kind of book that wouldn't get a lot of word of mouth, and yet it's got an enormous amount of it to the point where I kind of feel like it's it's almost a done, not not quite a done deal for the for the for the Hugo ballot, but I'd be really surprised if it wasn't at least solidly in the running, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, I think one of the things that happens with a book like that, and, and and this may be what happened to some extent with Nettie, it may be what happened with Karen Lord, is that if you get enough people who are visible enough, who are passionate about the book, yeah, um, and 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 keep it in in front of people and shove it in people's um, hands, and I, I, I don't think he would object to me saying this. I've never seen Patrick Nielsen Hayden more excited about a tour book yeah. um, th than that one. He was at Neil Gaiman's birthday party pushing it on. I was, I was doing the same thing, pushing it on everybody we could find. Um, 
So, so if, if there are people who, uh, enough people, not one or two people, I don't think any of us in the field, as atomized as no, it is, no, no, no. have the influence to, to, to make a, a, a book a contender. Um, but you're right. There, there's a problem with people who have had bad luck with the industry in the past, and you wonder what happened to them. Lisa Goldstein had a novel out this year, which is a good novel. <clears throat> but, you know, she, because she was working under a pseudonym for a while, she seemed to have faded from view for a while. Sure, yeah. Uh, R.A. McAvoy may have had a, a, a multiple award winning. I looked up Tea with the Black Dragon was nominated for the Hugo Nebula Locus and Philip K. Dick Awards. Yeah. Um, and now, uh, you know, her new novel, I'm glad that Prime is doing it, uh, but it's there's something to be said for the fact that it is Prime and, and not a big New York house. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so you would have thought that Bantam might have welcomed her back. I mean, I remember being very surprised after this. She did a, did a trilogy of novels. That, uh, the Lens of the World trilogy. And then after yeah. that, basically disappeared until a novella came out from Subterranean a year or two ago. And I think she had medical issues yeah. and whatever else. But, yeah. Yeah, she, she, she did have, there were personal problems, which I'd, I'd heard about. And, um, and, there, but, and, and there are things that are probably, in most of these cases, unavoidable. Uh, mm. But nevertheless, you know, we punish people for not staying in our face all the time. And by and large, people, especially novelists, yeah. Um, uh, can't do what they used to do. It used to be that if you had a novel, you can have a novel out for a few years. Well, you'd have stories in 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 Asimov's or or Analog or something. You'd you'd still be visible. Yeah. Uh, and it's harder and harder to do that. Yes. The okay. other thing which I yeah. would, uh, just by way of recommending uh, for next year, because we talked about this briefly, but I had a thought about it after we mentioned it on the podcast. Um, the short story collections. I mean, one of the strong sto short story collections this year, again from a small press, is Daryl Gregory's Unpossible and Other Stories. Yes. And it's, uh, it, it's, it's one that deserves a lot of buzz. One of the things I want to recommend to people in general is that if you have a favorite novelist, uh, find, those, find that person's stories because you, you don't get a sense of a writer's versatility yeah. just by reading novels. Um, you, you and I both recall that Daryl Gregory's initial, uh, he published some stories a long time ago, a very touching story called The Continu Continuing Adventures of Rocket Boy. Yeah. But he wrote this story called Second Person Present Tense, which was just stunning. Yes. I mean, it was, it, the neurology in it was solid, uh, the characters were solid, the family relationships were solid, and, and then he wrote a series of equally stunning stories dealing with various real-world neurological problems. There's yeah. a character who appears to be autistic in Dead Horse Point, but who really has, as he described it once, the the opposite of a of attention deficit disorder. She just concentrates for like days on one thing. She's a brilliant uh, physicist. So, But the thing is, if you read his novels, uh, all of which have their own excellences, uh, you're starting with a kind of, uh, you know, well, somewhat wacky fantasy novel, Pandemonium, uh, with the spirits possessing people for decades and the spirit that once possessed Philip K. Dick. And there's a lot of pop culture stuff. Mm -hmm, in it. Mm -hmm. um, and he moves from that to a strange uh, returning home to a mutated village uh, story in the devil's alphabet and moves from that to a zombie novel. They all have their own virtues, but you yeah. don't get a sense of Daryl Gregory's range until you read his short stories, yeah. but you see all of that and more. Sure. Sure. I agree. And so that's why that's my little, homily that story collections are an important way of understanding any writer's development and career yeah okay well well in this context let's ask let me ask you about the strange cases of the books you can't get buzz for mm -hmm. because I, I sat down for a minute and without looking at any list i tried to work out some possible a list of awards contenders that's all not not, mm -hmm. not the specific award anything else and then I started looking at lists, and I realized that I, I had not put Michael Swanwick's Dancing with Bears on the list. Mm -hmm. Now, you've read Dancing with Bears. I've read Dancing with Bears. I read and enjoyed Dancing with Bears. If you'd said three years ago that a book like Dancing with Bears was coming out, you might well have said that it was almost a shoe-in for a Hugo nomination. Michael Swanwick mm -hmm. is very popular in the field. He's won the, won the Hugo often, has been nominated for it often, but been nominated regularly, certainly. Um, mm -hmm. It's a popular, it's a first novel featuring popular characters with Dargren surplus. And yet, and in, parentheses, uh, in parentheses, let me add, 
popular characters because people had been reading his short fiction. Yes, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, so it was a book that people were in many ways waiting for. I'd heard people say that, you know, he was writing a book, they were interested in it. Book mm-hmm. comes out. I think it actually meets all of the kind of things that you would hope the book would meet. Uh, they go to some trouble. Certainly, Swanwick goes to more trouble than I've, than I've ever seen him go to but in the past to publicize the book. And he made those little audio plays and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And yet it has no buzz. I mean, the book's been out for four months, five months. You know? And I'm going, well, how can that be? What's what's the process that's dis- that, that hasn't I guess with people? Yeah, the question you're asking really is what keeps a novel from developing buzz? Yeah. and uh, or, or what keeps an author from developing buzz? I mean, somebody else I've mentioned who has a new novel out this year which may be problematical in terms of the Hugo because it's a sequel. But that's uh, somebody I've, I've, uh, I've praised on this podcast before, Kathleen Angunen. Yeah. It strikes me she's one of the most provocative writers in the field. She's very serious about using science fiction to develop uh, ideas that she's passionate about. Yeah. She thinks things well very through. I've, very, very, very well. I'm, I'm not sure that the, um, uh, the new Kathy Gunan novel, um, you know, The Shared Dream, has gotten the buzz that it should. And again, partly that's because it's a sequel, but I go back a year ago and think that in War Times, which established this world, um, was uh, a novel that should have had a lot more discussion than it got. True. Um, and I, I, I don't know how you turn that around. I don't know. I mean, obviously, in some ways, what we're talking about is a multi-billion dollar question that confronts publicists and marketing people everywhere. Um, well, and, yeah. and, and one of the things I know that um, the people who... People who write online reviews hope that they can influence things. People yeah. like myself who write published reviews know that you really can't much. Reviewers are <laughs> about a, at the bottom of the list for creating buzz. Yeah. Um, and, and yet, I, 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 sometimes it's occurred to me uh, when this issue comes up of writing too many favorable reviews, or not writing reviews of books that you can't finish, that maybe, maybe one way to generate that buzz, not that I ever hope to do it, is to just write really mean reviews of everything, and then if you actually <laughs> like a book, people will pay attention to you. I don't know. I mean, honestly, I, I suspect the truth is that about this is you just can't control it. That it, it has to be something that enough people are enthusiastic about, and that the uh, the the action that you and Patrick went through at that Neil Gaiman party, where you, you talk to people about Joe Walton's book, is the multi-million dollar thing you can't touch. You know, you can't influence. Where basically people become genuinely enthusiastic, and they say, "Oh gosh, I." I you know, I, I read this fantastic book. You have to try it out. It's going to be really great. And people well, I think oh, that I trust part, you, so I'll pick it up. Okay, part of what you just included in that statement was an element of surprise, which I think is crucial. Yeah. I think uh, that one of the things that made, among others, so talked about was uh, not that not that earlier Joe Walton novels had been in any way a disappointment. We knew what a Joe Walton novel was, and this wasn't it. This was something new. This was a surprise. It was stunning. It, it hit a lot of us right in the heart because it explained and talked about and examined and dissected uh, experiences of discovering science fiction and fantasy, yeah. which we'd all gone through at one time or another. I think that um, one of the problems with uh, the um, Darger and Surplus novel yeah. is that yeah. you're right. There were a, a fair number of people who liked Swanwick, a uh, fair number of people who really liked the Darger and Surplus characters, uh, and and he produced the novel, and it wasn't a surprise. It was yes. as good as we thought it would be, but it was, oh, he's done it. He's written a Darger and Surplus novel. Thank goodness it's there. But he didn't stun anybody. Actually, the novel does uh, do some unusual things with Darger and Surplus. It separates them for virtually the entire length of the novel. Yeah. It has a lot of inventiveness in it. But I think the reaction was, oh, good, he's written a Darger and Surplus novel. Yeah. And that's not the same reaction you get when you're stunned with something new. Um, when you discover, you know, when you read something like uh, <clears throat> Perdido Street Station. Let's go back a few years. Most sure. people who read Perdido Street Station had not read King Rat. No. So they didn't know what China was doing. And suddenly, this is astonishing. This is a kind of world we haven't seen before. I think that was part of what went on with Hanu Rayanyemi. He had written some good short fiction. But we didn't know where that novel yeah. was coming from, so it was a surprise. So I think part of what creates that buzz is a sense of, I didn't see this coming. Yeah, I think, I think there's, there's truth to that. Uh, I think the other thing that happens, and it doesn't affect the individual buzz for a work, but it affects the feeling about the year, is that we compartmentalize what we discuss. 
we think about the year in science fiction books, the year in fantasy books. We think about the year in first novels, collections, anthologies. Mm. But we tend to think about them, and I guess for, for I guess for the purposes of this, maybe by we, I simply mean those of us who are stuck in the locus life cycle. But uh, you think about them separately rather than collectively, and so you say, well, you know, like it's not a particularly great year, 2011. I mean, uh, that was the impression I got hearing in talking to Kirsten on the writer and the critic. It was, you know, sort of like, well, you know, there's like these two books. I'm not hearing much buzz about it, you know, much else. And you're going, well, is that really true? Is that really how, you know, is the year really going to be sort of, we'll start with Joe Walton, we'll end with Ian McDonald, and, you know, all the rest of it, yeah, whatever. But I don't think that's well, true. I, <clears throat> I think when we talk about buzz, which is a, a term that I guess we've all learned to use. Uh, and if you're looking at the Hugo, which is a popular vote, then it depends on buzz. And the reason it depends on buzz is I'm convinced that especially, well, in all categories, but especially when you get past the novel category and possibly the media categories, yep. uh, a lot of people are voting for these awards based on what they've heard about books rather than sure. on what they've actually read. But okay, without looking at the list, without cheating, can we come up with half a dozen potential Hugo Award nominees for next year? Half a dozen in, six, in the six. novel category? Yeah, okay. best novel. Um, well, I think we've got two of them probably, uh, I hope, nailed down. One would be uh, Embassy Town and the other one would be The Quantum Thief. White men. Um, so be careful. Mm -hmm. and, and also, is The Quantum Thief, el Quantum Thief eligible? Wasn't it last year? But um, was it? Oh, I guess it would be... Uh, I don't know. I, I never know the rules. Okay, we're going to have to wait for Cheryl to explain them to us because it was published in the States this year, I believe. Yeah, it was. So, so that may do it. I think it may be. A, well, that's the Nebulous or American publication. Anyway, right. doesn't, doesn't matter. Okay. But, uh, okay, so let's say that we've got um, Embassy Town by China. Mm -hmm. um, probably, I was thinking about, uh, oh, Joe Walton's among others, which I think will definitely be on the yes, final Yes, I think that'll be there. Um, and I think... If there's justice in the world, based on my reading of the book, Planes Runner by Ian McDonald is one of my favorite. I was going to bring year. that up as well. And one of the things that I think is um, is shifting, not as rapidly as it might, is 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 the willingness of Hugo Best Novel uh, voters to look at something which is clearly a, a young adult novel. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I I I'm going to argue with you slightly because I've heard that that. Uh, point of view put. I don't, I'm not convinced that Hugo voters were ever opposed to including young adult stuff. I think the young adult category came along and existed or, or came into existence as a marketing category much more over the last, you know, the post-JK Rowling years or the JK Rowling years. And so we became aware of works as YA rather than just simply including them in, in what we're discussing. I think if Scott Westerfeld had written his uh, Clanker trilogy and he was someone that we knew about because of his space opera series, and there wasn't an overt YA marketing category. We would just look at them as science fiction books, maybe aimed at, you know, you know we, we may have called them juveniles because that's what the field knows, knew them as, but we would have included them, I think. I don't think there was a, a great prejudice. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's my, my feeling. Well, but, but, but what you're describing is a kind of prejudice. I mean, basically you're saying, what if Scott, um, who wrote a terrific two-volume space opera, what, 10, 15 years ago? The Killing of Worlds and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and if he'd continued writing those for the next several years and suddenly we got um, uh, the um, Leviathan trilogy, sure. that would have had a better chance of being nominated because we knew him as a good hard SF guy than mm. it has because he's since had a reputation as a YA writer. Yeah. In no. other words, yeah. do you have a better chance of being nominated for a Hugo yeah. if you are a... Uh, traditional uh, adult SF writer who's venturing into YA than if you're a uh, traditional YA author who's writing a steam trilogy. I guess I guess that's possible. That that may be true. Yes. Okay, we've got three books, right? We've got Embassy Town, among others, and Planes Runner. I'm mm -hmm. going to go out there and say I don't think Reamed by Mr. Uh, Stevenson is going to make the ballot. I don't. Well, for one thing, it's not a science fiction novel. It might make it simply because of his popularity. Yeah. Uh, but. Uh, I, it would be one of those odd things where uh, a sheer loyal following gets somebody on the ballot because they want him to win these awards. Uh, okay. W w worthy, I mean, sorry, okay. Uh, I, I, I was going to say the, uh, the, 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 the Neil Gaiman effect, in, in, in effect, is what that sure, is. Sure, sure. There's, there's the worthy titles that probably won't make it, like, say, Chris Priest's The Islanders. 
I think Chris Priest the Islanders ought to make it, but it's... It'd be a better um, shot for the Nebula Road of thought, and certainly the British Science Fiction Award or something like that. But unlikely to make the Hugo's because it's not going to be out in the in the U.S. for a start. And that's it's not going to be out in the U.S. But to to go back to my surprise factor, that was one of the novels that utterly surprised me, uh, and 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 delight in, in all sorts of delightful ways. Yep. And I think when people get, it, it it may be one of those novels that by the time people get around to it, it'll be too late for it to be nominated. Possibly. Uh, which, uh, George Martin's book will probably be on the Hugo list. I would think. Yes, I would think so. I would think so. Um. One that I there's a couple here that I'm not so that okay. I'm trying to come up with six titles. I'm not going to tell you books that may make it, but I'm not sure about. I think John Scalzi's Fuzzy Nation may make it. I think it might make it. I think he's very popular, and I think that would be enough. Though it would, I haven't read the book, so I have no opinion of it other than that. Um, I think Charlie Strauss's three, three, Rule Thirty Four might make it. That could very well be. That could that could very well do it. And I have to say, um, just just stopping right there for a second. I know I'm interrupting and talking over you, but. At this point, I'm becoming very uncomfortable. We have almost all males on the list. And I don't think that that's a real reflection of the year. I think probably not. We also have, the list we have so far only has one American writer on the list, I believe. Yeah, well, those guys just aren't, you know. just not keeping up with the... They're not pulling their weight anymore, you American science fiction writers. Come on, people. And I mean, they got Dan Simmons wrote Flashback, but I don't hear anything particularly in terms of buzz about that. Verna, I mean, come on. Verna Vinge's put out a new book in his most popular series yet, a book where the, this is the third book in a set, and I think both of the preceding volumes won the Hugo, is my recollection. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly one of them did. Uh, and this is Children of the Sky, the follows up, follow up to A Fire Upon the Deep and uh, A Deepness yeah. in the Sky. And I hear no buzz. Nope. Not a word. In fact, what, the, the, the first thing I ever, the first thing I heard about it was when Charlie Strauss was expressing disappointment in it. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It, it may make the Hugo ballot. It's a possible, but I have to say, you know, not really likely. And, you know, that's kind of me. My, my first feeling is like that's me getting towards the end of my list. And I think, well, hang on. You really like that Will McIntosh novel, but I don't know if it would be a Hugo possibility. I don't think it's been visible enough. There are, uh, again, one of the other problems that happens is if you have a late novel in a series, even if it's competently done. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think I think the third volume in uh, in Joe Haldeman's Marsbound series is about to come out. Yeah. And it's a, it's a series which is it's 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 something which I frankly don't think was that hard for for Joe to write, um, but it's in, in in terms of the traditional kind of you know, uh, image of science fiction, it was certainly uh, satisfies people's expectations that way. Yeah. How about um, it, how about some of the first novels that have got good buzz? I mean, obviously, there's, assuming you count it, there's Hanu Ryan Yemi with The Quantum Thief, which would be a chance, I think, if it's eligible. I think, right. Uh, Genevieve Valentine's first book, uh, Mechanique, has got a lot of great buzz. So that's getting a lot of good buzz, yeah. And that's uh, one of the things which I've, I've not read it. I've, I keep hearing things about it that makes me uh, well, I'm going to be reading it because, um, you know, as you know, involved with the Crawford. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. There, uh, there's what Will McIntosh's book, Soft Apocalypse. Wait, I mean, and he's won a Hugo. Let's see, he's won a Hugo in the past, and Soft Apocalypse has the book hasn't. This is an interesting thing about Buzz because the whole notion of uh, of gradual apocalypse, or the, uh, there's another phrase besides soft apocalypse that's been used. Um, that's been discussed uh, quite a bit on uh, on various websites. That is the kind of dystopian notion that uh, we'll just sort of uh, destroy the world on our own without any mm-hmm. particular cataclysm. Uh, so, so that that idea as a kind of meme is out there. For some reason, even though the novel appeared right in the middle of that meme, it didn't get linked to it. So yep. it, it didn't take advantage of that discussion that was going on, or it wasn't able to take advantage of yep. it. And then there's something like, well, the, the two other first novels that, in fact, three other first novels I've heard things said about, which I, you know, and I confess right, right away, have not read the book, so I, I'm just, there's Cam, Cameron Hurley's God's War, which I heard great buzz for. Yes. Um, particularly from our, I think our friend, our friend Neil Harrison was talking about it with great enthusiasm. And I did try to read it, and I, it didn't gel for me, but from what I understand, you know, he, he loved it a great deal. Uh, there's Howard Jones's The Desert of Souls. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I is a sword and sorcery novel, which I've heard great things about. 
I feel so underread this year, Gary. And then there's, of course, Stina Licht's book of Blood and Honey, which has got, got great buzz. Which has got some great buzz and has got some uh, uh, genuinely uh, passionate people uh, behind it. Yeah. Um, and I've heard good things about it from, uh, oh, from our friend Karen Burnham. I've heard mm. good things from, from my friend Stacey Haynes. And, uh, the, and, 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 I, I, and, and she's, again, done a good deal of historical work with it. Um, she's again one of these first novelists that uh, that Nightshade has been promoting, uh, possibly more enthusiastic than more enthusiastically than any other publisher. Yeah. Um, which is which maybe that that's uh, the other question is where do you look for first novels? Yeah. Um, well, it's harder and harder to get the first no like a story collection. I think it's getting more and more difficult to get a, a first novel published by um, a, a major New York publisher. I don't know. I'd be interested to know if that's true. Generally, um, publishers are more friendly to first novels than second ones, you know. So I, I'm not sure. I don't have a strong feeling about it. Um, yeah. There seem to be few. There yeah. seem to be uh, – I, I guess what I'm saying is there seem to be relatively few uh, publishers that – pointedly um, advertise or promote a line of discoveries of first novelists, yeah. uh, the kind of discovery series you used to see every once in a while. Let me give you, just inter sort of interrupt the flow of this with another uh, sort of strange case of a lack of buzz. Right? This is a book which I honestly think, if you'd said to me several years back that there'd be no buzz at all about it and nobody anywhere would be talking about it, I wouldn't have believed you. Uh, the third Aberat novel from Clive Barker. Absolute, yeah. absolute Midnight, right? Now, this is a series mm -hmm. you'll recall that Barker sold for enough money to buy a small country. Uh, exactly. He partnered with Walt Disney or whatever it was or somebody. There going to be, there's going to be Aberrant theme parks. There was going to be movies. There was going to be underwear, everything, right? Aberrant chocolates. And the first book came out, and, then, and it was well-received. The second book came out. It was very well-received, particularly there was a long delay, but he rewrote it and all kinds of stuff you heard in the background. And now the third book comes out next week. Mm -hmm. To my knowledge, we've not seen a galley of it you know, in the Oakland bunker uh, for Locust, and I haven't heard a single word of anything. I mean, maybe the pub dates are wrong, maybe it's not really happening, but from, from, what, I, from what I hear, it's due out next week, and there's nothing, you know. Well, that, that's the sort, of, the sort of thing that can happen with high-profile series that, for one reason or another, don't work. The other question, which I guess is, do we know of anything, and this is harder for me to trace because sometimes um, a, a genre review organ like Locust never sees these things. Are there things from um, the other worlds of publishing, from, from general fiction, from young adult fiction, the sort of thing that uh, Suzanne, uh, the, the, the Hunger Games yeah. uh, sort of thing. Is there anything like that that, is, uh, that that we might not be looking at because we're looking at genre books? Um one of the books which they predicted would do that was the Beth Revis novel, Across the Universe. That was flagged mm -hmm. as being a big breakout book because it was a you know, young adult novel, science fiction novel, gener I think it's a generationship novel. Um, mm -hmm. We reviewed it very well. Uh, Gwenda Bond gave it a very positive review. Uh, I know they put lots and lots of oomph behind it in terms of PR and marketing. They thought it was going to go places. And yet, I'm not hearing that roll on. What I'm here seeing instead is, I'm like, if you, if you look through the sort of the young adult books are around, the, the one that one of the ones that I keep hearing now more about, actually, and I think it's a partly it's because there's legacy buzz, and this happened with um, uh, with Shipbreaker, Paolo Bacigalupi's second book. Uh -huh. uh, I think Akata Witch is getting a lot of flow on interest because of Who Fears Death. Right, I think that's true. You know, uh -huh. and and well deserved kind of. Um, things. I've also heard great things about Ray Carson's book, The Girl of Fire and Thorns, which is a fantasy novel and may even be, I need to, I don't know if it's, if it, whether it's a first novel or not, um, in which case it would fall under the, the auspices of your Absolutely, award, Mr. Mr. Wolf. It is a first novel, Gary. Okay. Uh, I'm writing that down now. Give me the name and the title again. <laughs> it's The Girl of Fire and Thorns. By Ray, R-A-E, Carson, C-A-R-S-O-N. So there you go. You see, this is how the process works. This must well, be, I, I hope this isn't a boring podcast for everybody. I, you know, I, I don't know if it is. I mean, people want, we're talking about actual titles, even though they may be titles of things we haven't read. It's part of the problem. Here's, I'm, 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 I'm obsessing on the term buzz now because 
it seemed to me that there was a time I'm thinking about in my childhood, there were a few places where you could find out about books. Yeah. Uh, by and large, um, mainstream media wouldn't review them much. I mean, for years and years, there was a, uh, a science fiction column in the, in a Chicago uh, newspaper by Aldous Budras, yeah. which I read religiously while he was alive and while he was doing it. Um, and we've talked before about the uh, proliferation of uh, websites and uh, blogs and magazines and e-zines that talk about science fiction. Is it possible that now that we have all these mechanisms for creating buzz, we have so many mechanisms that there's no place to create buzz? Well, I mean, uh, off the top of my head, what I actually think is maybe there's the opposite. We have, we have ways of filtering buzz now. And it, it's a, and it, you know, in other words, because there are so many places that can give us commentary, we tend to deprecate them, you know, not want to listen I'm to not, them especially, and we 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 fall back on you know the the oldie word of mouth, you know, you mean you you know sort of you read that book and you really loved it, great, I'll 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 pay attention to that over so and so on the New York Times website giving a good review. I mean, uh, a lot of a lot was made of the fact that. Um, the Kathleen Goonan book was given a great review in the Washington Post, mm -hmm. which is a terrific thing to have happened. And yet there's part of me that goes, well, so what? It's the Washington Post. I probably won't even go and read the review. Uh, and in fact, if I wasn't Locus's reviews editor, I would certainly not go and read the review. I would I'd wait to see whether, well, not wait, but if it wasn't a book that I was seeking out anyway, I would be more alerted to the fact that Elisa Krasenstein said, hey, I read this book. It was really good. Or you turned around to me, and outside of the context of us talking publicly about books, said, "I really enjoyed this one." You know, that would flag mm -hmm. it for my attention more than the the publicly promulgated ways of. Yeah, let me just books. parenthetically disagree a little bit with with your characterization of the Washington Post, which does a better job of assigning knowledgeable reviewers oh, sure. to science fiction books than any other U.S. newspaper. Yeah. I mean, they'll have reviews, not only by Michael Durda, of course, but by Elizabeth Hand or John Crowley or John Clute. So by and large, that's true. I think the part of the problem is the Washington Post doesn't automatically get to readers of science fiction. Yeah. Um, uh, the way it's possible that even Love Grossman at Time magazine doesn't get to, uh, to enough readers in the genre. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't trying to deprecate the proliferation of websites to discuss about it. I'm simply saying that if you have... Uh, Again, if, if you're in a world in which there are three or four places that even talk about science fiction, you pay attention to the books that they talk about. Yeah. One of the most influential buzz creators uh, probably in the last half century of science fiction was the Science Fiction Book Club. Yeah. Because they would put, they would put a book in your hands. And if you've got four or five people recommending books to you, uh, or four or five institutions or magazines recommending books to you, of course you're going to pay attention to them. It's not hard to pay attention to them. If you've got 1,500 people recommending books, yeah. then you almost have to filter them out. And you have to find friends that you trust. You have to find websites that you trust. You have to find uh, reviews that you at least uh, uh, have some, uh, some sort of affinity with. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I will certainly read... Uh, the, the strange. I'll certainly read Strange Horizons. I'll certainly read, read mm. you know, the, the the review that comes out in um, uh, Torque Control. Uh, the uh, my fellow reviewers in Locus. Uh, I'll pay attention to what goes on in mainstream reviews. Uh, but uh, partly because of being in the field like that, we very seldom learn about books that we don't already know about. That's true. And so I'm trying to back off and think of what it was like before I was working for Locus when I was just trying to figure out what book to read, and um, uh, in, in those days, it was simply a matter of uh, finding a reviewer or two that you trusted, yeah. and, uh, and, and having reviewers that, again, could explain the book in clear enough and fair enough terms that even if they didn't like it, yeah. you might decide that you do. Sure. I will say we still don't have three books, or six books. <laughs> oh, we are, okay. Um, uh, let, let me... Progressed though down a slightly different path because I know I'm bouncing around here, but I've got some vague logic to it. It's been another great year for collections, though. Yes. I mean, in fact, course. we only have great years for collections. The the short story market, which is such a awful market in some ways, you know, it's still paying. In fact, it's paying rates in 2011 that a professional writer in 1955 probably would have 
scoffed at. Oh, yeah. Um, and for an audience of such size that a professional writer in 1955 would have scoffed at. Um, and yet, you know, like, I don't know whether... Here's one. The interesting question to ask. I don't know whether Robert Silverberg in 1960 would have been happy writing for FNSF if, if it started with the size of audience it now has back then. It would have been mm-hmm. too small to pitch to as a market. And yet, here's a batch of collections, not strictly off the top of my head because I'm cheating, but I do recall them all and have them on my collection. We've had a strong collection from Joan Aiken, a terrific collection from Peter Beagle, a good collection from uh, Terry Bisson. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, we've had... A very good collection from, in fact, you, you won't have seen it yet, but from Andy Duncan. His new collection oh, is, is just out. There's, there's arcs around. There's the best, there's the collected stories of Carol M. Schwiller. Um, there's supposed to be a new Kathy Goonan. There's the Daryl Gregory that you've talked about. There's, there's a, a Tim Powers. There is. There's a Gwyneth Jones collection, mm-hmm. a very good Gwyneth Jones collection. A very, very, very good Caitlin Kiernan collection, which, yes. in truth, for that particular book, I'll set aside and say, if that book isn't on the World Fantasy Award ballot next year, I will have to eat my cravat. I'll have to, in fact, I have to go buy my cravat <laughs> so I can eat it. There will be the book that gets potentially overlooked by everybody, but should be on awards ballots, Yellow Cake by Margot Lanigan. Which, well, that's not very visible yet. Yeah, which you've probably already forgotten. Uh, there's Maureen Mc- a nuclear collection from Maureen McHugh. There's a Jeff Ryman collection. Um, there is a, indeed a Jeff Ryman collection. Uh, there was an interesting, because uh, I have started actually reading this one, so I can now comment for her, uh, an interesting Tansy Rand Roberts collection, Love and Roman Punk, those small uh, ones from 12th Planet Press, their 12th Planet series. Uh, there's the Lucy Sussex retrospective, the big, the, the big yes. one that you've read, which is very good. You can't, there's a Bruce Sterling collection, new Bruce Sterling collection. Yes. Um, you can't say it's not a great year for short fiction. No, I think that's true. Uh, well, short fiction collections, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I think that to some extent, they're, uh, to some extent, thanks to small presses, and I'm, if I'm not mistaken, almost all of the ones that we've named are small presses again. Um, a, a, a number of them, yeah. Well, I mean, to, to some extent, they've reinvented the market. Uh, there was, there, it seemed to me there was a period of time when the collection was the kiss of death. Yeah. Um, because the collection, but one of the reasons was sure. the collection would be your last book, <laughs> and your last, and, and the last yes. thing you wanted was book scans showing that your last book sold as fourth, fourth as many copies as your novel two years earlier yes. had. Yes, that's true. Um, um, I think that uh, seems to have balanced out a little bit now. And what was, I'd say, three or four years ago was a tentative movement on the part of. Uh, small presses to pick up collections, and terrific collections at that, because I'm thinking of Golden Griffin picking up uh, Mary oh, Rickard's collection. Sure, yeah. Now, now that's, a, that's a part of the publishing year. Now yes. we can expect to see good collections almost every year uh, in, in a way that seems to involve less risk-taking on the part of publishers than it might have seemed five or six yeah. years ago. I don't know, maybe that's one of the uh, uh, minor sort of advantages of having Borders close its final... <laughs> 33 stores this weekend. I saw the weirdest thing, by the way, on that. You're, you're jagging my head around. We'll come back to it. But uh, mm-hmm. I saw this weird thing where apparently Barnes & Noble were bought, were bidding on the intellectual pro- Borders intellectual property as part of an auction. Yeah, so it was like uh, names, brands, all that kind of stuff. So oh, there was an auction. It raised uh, a substantial amount of money. But the question is, did, did Barnes & Noble just buy Borders' name? Yes, I think they did. And isn't that a curious thing? But anyway, to, to, to finish up this, this line of thought, I actually think it's been a, a very good year overall. I think the fact that we're struggling to find six uh, novels to put on the Hugo ballot has more to do with our personal reading than anything else. And I actually want to put out a call to our readers. I want them to email us or comment on the blog. So go to you can email us at jonathan.stran at gmail, and I'll put it through to uh, Gary as well. Or you can go to, um, <laughs> it's all set up by me, jonathanstran.podbean.com and comment on the, the uh, podcast itself. Or you can tweet us to either of us, either at, at Gary Wolf or at Jonathan Stran or even at Cood Street, because we have our own Twitter feed now. 
Uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, before somebody, um, before somebody emails you with this, one novel we left off the list is Robert Charles Wilson's Vortex. Yes, which but, it seems to me has a very strong com- possibility. Yeah, I, what I'd love you to do is just tell us without really thinking about it, one or two books that you think were the best books you read this year that were new this year. Mm-hmm. So we can get a bit of a feel for what other people think, because I feel that otherwise we risk having too insular a viewpoint ourselves. You know, and this is something we've talked about often, how you combat you know, having an insular view of the field. And so I'm very eager to hear from other people out there as to what they thought. Um, you know, I know Paul Cornell has a favorite novel of the year uh, that came mm-hmm. out, uh, Heaven's Bridge, I think. Uh, which he was uh, being very enthusiastic about. This is the Michael Cassett and yes, oh Goyer collaboration. Yeah, uh, which he was hugely enthusiastic about, which is terrific. And which you know, his enthusiasm counts for a lot. So I've got to go and have a look at that. And you know, there are other books around. So I don't know. It's been an interesting year, Gary. I don't. Um, I, I think you're right. We need to protect against having an insular insular view of the field in the sense that we need to um, find books we but like, like the one that Paul Cornell was talking about which just completely missed your attention and mine as well uh, on the other hand I am willing to defend having an insular view of the field oh, because sure. if you don't have an insular view of the field you don't have a view of the field Actually, I've even got a radical idea Gary maybe you should this is all, this is this is live podcasting at its most sort of rambling how, uh-huh. how about this if you are listening to our podcast, email us or tweet at us your recommendation. And if we can, and if it all works out, we will get back to you and we will ask you to hop on Skype and record a couple of minute kind of recommendation for your book. And we'll put oh, it into idea. the podcast. I thought for a minute there you were going to offer a free iPad to the winning contributor and we're not going to do that. Well, no, we have we only have two iPads, Gary, your one and my oh, okay, one. And they can yeah, all- I'm not giving it away. No, sorry. No, no, no Sorry. <laughs> I don't like any of you that much. Go away, my, my iPad. In fact, I'm going to be what reading Al Reynolds' that, book on my iPad. Well, the other thing is, because we are getting close to the end of the year, what are the novels that we haven't seen yet that uh, between now and December, is there anything that... Because uh, a lot of things uh, do seem to miss our attention. Well, I, I, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're, well, obviously, I, haven't, I actually personally am quite eager to read this... Um, book from from clive barker because i've enjoyed his stuff in the past uh let me just think we're talking about well we've only really got what october november december to go don't we right and i'm i'm as many people figure out by our deadlines i've just been writing a november column already so we've only got another um month or so out of that one of the things that is frustrating is because sometimes this actually happened to me i think with the hanu rayanimi novel i get really excited about a book uh, that I'm reading, and then I realize, oh, wait a minute, that's January 2012. <laughs> well, I can tell you, okay, uh, yes, you're right. When the problem is, if, if we're still waiting to see the book and it's the you know, middle of September, things right. aren't going well for our hero because, because the, the books that I've read sort of discounted. Like, I, I read and I loved the new Terry Pratchett, right? Um, right. I've read and I loved it's my favorite anthology of the year, Gavin and Kelly's Steampunk and Anthology of Fantastically Rich and Strange Stories. Mm-hmm. But I kind of feel like, well, I read those already, and you're asking, what am I still waiting to see? For a while there, I was waiting for the um, – oh, my God, what's that? Um, I was waiting for the, the Neil Stevenson, and then I got a copy, and now I'm just too scared to read it because it's too long. <laughs> <laughs> and I am. I mean, it's a failure of nerve on my half, behalf, and you have to realize that in 2012, when I'm looking back at 2011, my recommendations are for everything except for the Neil Stevenson book that I was too scared to read. Um, well, one of the things that, uh, that that is a problem having a monthly deadline is that I, I know a lot of people, a lot of friends mm. of mine have books from the, the books that have been piling up all year, like your like your Reemdi or yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm I'm going to continue pronounce that read me because I because I don't like typos. Um, but what I've got is a pile of I don't have a pile of them yet, but I, I have to be thinking about the books that I want to read that I know I'm going to be looking at and they're all 2012 books i mean yeah um I, we're, I want, we're mostly I, I, done with 2011 books yeah i think it's essentially uh i don't think any surprises are going to come up in that list anymore 
How about Bugfuck, The Worthless Wit and Wisdom of Harlan Ellison? Is that a 2011 book? It's supposed to be coming out from Spectrum in November. Oh, okay. I'm not sure what that is, but I have a feeling it's probably going to be in the best-related book category, if anything. <laughs> Too bad I don't read in that category, Gary. Well, apart from mm. your I read your Well, that's the other thing. I mean, we talk about, you know, when it comes time well, to do the, the, uh, the related book stuff next year, there are books. Well, the, the best-related book category, which is one that I always hope is full of utter crap, because especially in years <laughs> when I have something, but it's got some good things in it this year. I mean, yep. Uh, you know, there's, I don't know whether Margaret Atwood's book is going to get nominated. Uh, I think there's a reasonable chance that John Clute's new book will. Uh, You've got a couple? There's a, uh, I've got a couple. Uh, there's a, a major book on Ray Bradbury called Becoming Ray Bradbury that's just out. Um, but I think that category, I think one of the things that happened this year mm-hmm. was that the common wisdom got overthrown by Chickstig Time Lords. Uh, well, but then it just proves that the common r- r- wisdom was wrong. Uh, if it, once the uh, once the common wisdom is wrong, it's been overthrown. Okay. Uh, and my point is, I I, I I thought that was delightful. I mean, I have a lot of admiration for the enormous amount of work that went into the Heinlein biography, and uh, and and this is uh, Patterson's life work, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Uh, but it's no longer a shoe in because it's a very popular a writer that's being written about or a kind of uh, weighty, uh, important book that tells us all kinds of things about Heinlein we didn't know before. Instead, a book that generates a lot of excitement and enthusiasm, uh, in this case, among a, a substantial population of Doctor oh. Who fans. Uh, and, and I give you credit. You predicted that as a dark horse before the Hugo Awards. On this podcast, as I well, well, I, I did, but I have to say, I mean, if we're going to sort of give credit and be completely honest, it's only because I was listening to other people. Mm-hmm. And the other people particularly I was listening to were our, our friends over at Galactic Suburbia. The sheer enthusiasm, particularly Tansy had for the book, flagged it for me because it's not a book that I would have had an opinion on in truth. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that I would have been negative about it or unsupportive about it. It just wouldn't have got on my radar because first of all, I don't have a lot of time to read a lot of nonfiction. I don't read a lot of nonfiction books particularly. And mm-hmm. I don't read a lot of media related ones. So a book about Doctor Who, whether it was from a, a woman's point of view or not, is not a book that would naturally have gotten onto my radar to talk about. Um, mm-hmm. But Tansy was so enthusiastic really that it really flagged it to me and I went back and sort of I thought I think that could do it and then you know you get the, the you have to allow that there's the popularity of I mean the popularity of Doctor Who with the Hugo votership just itself the willingness for for when, when you move from a set of nominees to a set of you know winners you know when you're going from we could put anything onto the ballot to now we have a ballot let's decide you know the one that surprised me, I'm you know, mildly surprised that Fuck Me Ray Bradbury didn't win. I am, yeah. I, Not I because I don't well. think it's the best thing, but just because I could see Hugo voters going, that's a fun thing to vote for. Oh, absolutely. And that's always a factor, yeah. uh, that there there are things that just, you see it again. And I go back to the uh, to my suspicion, well, my, more than my suspicion, because I've been told this by any number of Hugo voters, that they see something that thinks, that sounds cool. That happens to be one you could look at. But there are a lot of times when people will will go after something because it seems like it's fun to vote for or it's yeah. a perverse vote or it's a non-traditional vote, uh, which I hope doesn't lead to um, a lot of cutesy titles in the next few years. <laughs> people thinking if we do a really we do a really, really kind of out off the wall title that uh, I mean, if, 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 if next year, if sometime by the end of the year, yeah. there is a book out called Fuck Me, Doctor Who, I'm going to know that there's a trend here. <laughs> Well, hang on. How about a Harlan Ellison book called Bugfuck? Well, that's skipping in that territory, isn't it? <laughs> oh, Gary. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, we have rambled this time. But it's, it's a rambly podcast. Sometimes we should do something a bit more focused and strap down talking about particular books again. But, you know, it's interesting to talk about awards because we do talk about them a lot because it does talk about this process. And it is interesting for me as well to talk about this stuff now because – and I'm sure this has not yet crossed your mind. Given that it's the mid, mid-September, I'll be putting together the year's best over the next six weeks. Hopefully. You must have some ideas of what the best short stories of the year are. None at all. I'm, I'm in deep, deep trouble. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I do. I've got a few ideas of stories that would go into um, my year's best 
which you know I was, should be starting to send out contracts very soon actually um mm. but that also means the time is ticking to write our end of year essays to start building up the recommended yeah. reading list now nor now in in truth and just so in case you're wondering dear readers what or dear listeners my experience of the, of the locus recommended reading process is the list itself doesn't get assembled until we start in November and work on it through December. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't call for essays till actually December. So uh, it, it does. It, it's a little early to be flagging it, but it's, it's, it's on the cards. And I guess, yeah, one, one of the things that you're tweeting at us or emailing us or making recommendations, and we want hundreds of thousands of these, uh, mm -hmm. anything less than sort of oh, three or 400,000 will be disappointing. Um, if we, you know, it gives you a chance to you know, sort of tap us on the shoulder and say, well, you sit there and you talk all year about books and about the field and about publishing. You write your reviews, you do all this sort of stuff. But you know what? You haven't talked about this, and I think you should stop and take, you know, you know, pay attention to it for a minute, you know, whether it be the new Jose Sadomago novel or whether it be Philip, a Philip Reeve novel or whether it be Aliette de Bardard or whoever, you know. Tap us on the shoulder. Make sure we don't overlook it. Well, somebody is out there who's really seriously in love with Robopocalypse. Go away. I'd love to hear about it. Oh no, no. You see, you don't want to hear. Like, do you want to hear that they are seriously in love with it, or do you want to hear why? I want to hear why. I mean, I I, I didn't get very far into it, okay. so I probably don't have much of a, uh, a a leg to stand on here. But sometimes you do have uh, books that are worth. Um, talking about that get sometimes a knee-jerk reaction. Mm. That, in my opinion, from what I read, probably deserves the knee-jerk reaction I had. But it may not, because I don't know. I read last year, for example, one of the books that was like this was The Passage, the Justin Conan novel. Yes. And frankly, I thought the first hundred pages or so of it uh, were pretty terrific, and then it, um, it, it had a very likable character. It had a very suspenseful scenario. Mm -hmm. um, and then it and then it sort of leaped far into the future of the narrative, and I lost interest. Uh, yeah. But so I don't know whether the novel held up or not. Uh, but I uh, but I've talked to other people who who had a similar experience that I did. That uh, it was really a, a well worked out suspense novel of about three or four hundred pages, with another six hundred pages. <laughs> well, we shall see. We shall see whether two thousand eleven everybody else thought it was a good good year or not. And on that one, note, one thing, yes, Gary, uh, Okay, you have one more note. I had a question, which is just another one to put out. Uh, Do we okay. sometimes categorize writers by awards? Because when you mentioned Clive Barker, yeah. in the context of the Hugo Award, yeah. I thought, well, that's possible. Occasionally he comes up in discussions. Occasionally Steve King comes up in discussions. Yeah. And we were talking about novellas. Now, Peter Straub had a terrific novella out this year. Sure he did. And Peter Straub never, because maybe people feel he's, in the area of World Fantasy Awards or World Horror Awards or, uh, or Stoker Awards and that sort of thing. Uh, but he, he never even ventures into discussions of Hugo's the way that sometimes Barker and King do. Yeah, that, that's an interesting question, isn't it? You know, you're going, well, why wouldn't he uh, come into Hugo? Not, you know, I, well, I think it's just how you're saying. You're right. I mean, uh, similarly, um, well, Kate Kiernan. Kate Kiernan, you'd expect yeah. on a World Fantasy ballot, you wouldn't necessarily accept expect on a Hugo ballot, and yet, in fairness to Kate, first of all, she writes science fiction unashamedly science fiction, and the longest all, story in her collection is a science fiction story. I've got to stop on that. I shouldn't call her Kate. I don't know that she, that she ever goes by that name. Uh, mm. But she's writes unashamedly science fiction. She's indisputably one of our best science fiction writers or short story writers. So she should mm. be in, in in play for Hugo's and everything else. But she's just yeah. not in that mindset. And I, I don't quite know why. I don't know how you move from, you know, uh, populist or well, even fairly popular writers. I mean, let's just say, because like Clive Barker, Clive Barker is enormously popular um, and yet not thought of, it, well, by us at least, as being mm -hmm. likely Hugo candidate rather than appropriate or valid or worth, you know, like writing work that's popular or high quality enough. There's, there's no doubt that the quality of the work is there and everything else. It's just it's not the context. I mean, it's like mm -hmm. when you look at people who are or not are not in the running for the World Fantasy Lifetime Achievement, right? 
And you sit mm-hmm. there and go, well, okay, World Fantasy Lifetime Achievement, anybody could potentially be up if they've written a bit of fantasy. So what about so-and-so? You know, have they been up for it? Have they? And you suddenly find out that no. Uh, somebody who you maybe thought would obviously have been nominated hasn't, mm-hmm. and it's because they're not thought of in that context. Well, that's what I mean. I think we, we, we tend to cluster certain writers around certain categories. As much as we talk about the barriers between genres and between genres and mainstream coming down, I, I, I think that, uh, by and large, the Hugos and the Nebulas are still much more focused on what we think of as science fiction. Sure. And the World Fantasy Awards are much are equally likely to exclude science fiction. Yeah. Well, does it surprise you that I think Bob Silverberg hasn't got the World Fantasy Lifetime Achievement? That's kind of astonishing. Um, but part, partly because uh, he's written significant amounts of written major fantasy works. Um, but, but I think you're right. I think he's perceived of and has always presented himself as a science fiction writer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think, well, that's true. But then uh, what of Majapur? Well, that's what I mean. Majapur is exactly what I was thinking of. Um, uh, wow, how's this? I am surprised. Color me, take it aback. Robert Silverberg, who is one of the greatest names in the history of our field, mm-hmm. has never been nominated for the World's Fantasy Award as a writer. Under any category? No. <clears throat> that's interesting. He's been nominated twice as an editor, but never as a writer. Well, I know from uh, discussions, and I'm not talking specifically about discussions I had with my committee as a judge, but I've, my discussions uh, with other judges over the years of World Fantasy Awards is that sometimes it comes to people's attention that, well, he gets a lot of recognition from the Hugos, or he's... Well, this, this, is, the, this is the Charles Brown question, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, do, do you need a World Fantasy Award when you've got a, a, a room full of Hugos? Yes. Do you need a Hugo when you've got a room full of World Fantasy Awards? Yes. I, um, I'll, yes, I, I'll, and I'll tell you why the answer is yes, and indisputably yes, because it's not about what you uh, need or what you deserve or anything else like that. It's, or it should be, is the achievement worthy of recognition? Yes, and I relevant agree with that. And all that kind of thing. And so it should never be. Well, you know, uh, Ellen Datlow has m- m- more Royal Fantasy Awards than anybody on Earth. She doesn't need any Hugos. Yeah, that, that's yeah. just a specious kind of a thing. It's silly. And, and, it's a, and it does suggest that it's sort of, it's all about collecting little trophies and stuff rather than about recognizing extraordinary achievement. So, no, I don't buy that argument at all. No, I, I, I wasn't presenting it as no. an argument. I was presenting it as, as something which does come up in discussions when you have judges, and I suspect it comes up in the minds of voters as well. Um, uh, and it's not fair. It's, it's, it's not fair because each work is separate, and uh, if you suddenly have... Well, here's a good example. You got Jeff Ford uh, for one of your anthologies to write a space opera story. I did. I did. But then as I think... Well, I told you the story behind that, didn't I? I think you did. Maybe not. Well, Which you one, have to tell I, the listeners now. Well, at one point I took it into my head, quite rightly, that I believe Jeff Ford could successfully write pretty much any kind of short story that he put his mind to. Right? I think I you're right. Uh, I think he's sufficiently gifted, sufficiently flexible as a writer. And I had put it to my then co-editor, Gardner Dazois, that Jeff could write a story for the new space opera. And whilst Gardner was a huge fan of Jeff's, he couldn't see that. And so I mm-hmm. put it to Jeff, write me a space opera story and I'll put it in Eclipse. And he did. He wrote that, you know, the story that ended up in Eclipse 2. Mm-hmm. And then similarly, uh, when I was working with Lou Anders on um, Swords and Dark Magic... I put it to him that Jeff could write just about anything, and he wasn't so sure. And Jeff wrote me the Coral Sword for Eclipse Three, showing that he could indeed write space opera or science fi- or s- swords and sorcery or anything you asked him to. So that that's how it came about. It was me just one of those times when you kind of go, I've got a great deal of faith in that writer. He's particularly or or her because I can actually think mm-hmm. of. I mean, I I have done this with with. Um, with Gwyneth Jones, I've asked her to write for various things where I was sure she could. Uh, Kate Kiernan's another, Caitlin Kiernan's another example. Uh-huh. Uh, generally, if a writer's really terrific and really great at writing short fiction, they can turn themselves to anything. And also, there's that maybe it's sort of mad editorial hubris, and this is where my personal mad editorial hubris comes in. 
you sort of you spot some element in a body of work that's been created and you think well that element can be abstracted and put into this context really well as well you know what makes a jeff ford story work and be magical can apply in this you know thing and i've got sufficient faith in that to give them the chance to do it it's it's why i you know you know i can think of a few writers i've done it with or or would do it with so but gary Mm. you've got a plane to catch I have I've got a plane to meet. Yes, I'm yes. picking a friend up at the airport in a little while. I did want to uh, add to one thing you were saying that uh, that I, I wanted to applaud you as an editor for doing that sort of thing because uh, some of my favorite writers uh, over the years, going back to childhood, are people who were from the beginning of their careers multi-genre writers. That may have been one of the things that happened when you had to survive by writing for a lot of different pulps. But if you look at <clears throat> two names, come to mind immediately. Fritz Leiber is one. Yeah who could write very effective horror stories, write very effective science fiction stories, change uh, very effective fantasy stories, and completely change the nature of the field in almost every field he wrote in. Yeah. Um, and although he's, uh, his, his early short stories may not be as well known as, as they were at one time, Richard Matheson began oh. as a science fiction slash horror slash fantasy writer. Yes, I think, and, yes. Uh, and, and the idea of being... Uh, trapped with a single identity is something I think you're right, especially among short fiction writers, where it becomes a, a matter of craft and a challenge to uh, uh, to the imagination. That yeah, I think a lot of people could do uh, a lot more different things. Joe Haldeman, I think, got a, if I'm not mistaken, got a World Fantasy Award for a horror story. Mm, yes, yes, yes. So, uh, so, 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 yeah, the uh, writers are. Uh, my, my faith in good writers is probably the same as yours that they are as flexible as we ask them to be. And then every, what is curious is every now and again is you, you come across someone and you think, you'll be able to do that, and you'll say, would you do this? And they just say, I can't think of anything like that. And you go, ah. Mm-hmm. Right. But you're right. To get back to our plane that I have to go meet, I should uh, probably figure a way to wind down this podcast. Well, I think this is, in fact, how we're winding down this we're winding podcast. winding it down by Okay, well, well, it's been a pleasure talking to you as always, Gary. I will see you nice. here again, probably with a, a cheery weather report from sunny Perth. I'm sure. I'm sure, because it's always spring in Oz. Yes, that and sort of probably news of the inexorable, horrific plane bookings I've made to get. Oh, that would be interesting. Yes. Yeah. So, so Good okay. luck with that. <laughs> okay. Until take, next time. Okay. Take care, my friend. Bye. Okay. Bye.